I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Check one, two. Check one, two. One, check one, two. Okay, I got a question for you, dude. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> Did you just fall on your face? <laughs> what's your, my question? My one question for you is, what's your favorite holiday? Oh, my favorite holiday is Halloween since you get to dress up. What are you going to be for Halloween? Harry Potter. Okay, I have a question for you. When we, like, walk to school... What are your favorite houses? What are they like? Um, well, one has a spider. One has, like, a, of a giant spider. And then, like, of a monster head and graveyards. And then a whole bunch of other monsters. And the other one has a, just one monster trying to climb up the house. Is it scary? No. Not just a little bit? Yeah. What does that mean, yeah? It means I'm not scared, just a little bit. Do I get scared? <laughs> yes. What do I do? Uh, you just freeze. Do I panic? No. Do I shake? No. Do I scream? No. What do I do? You just have your mouth open. So I freeze. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever get scared, Tep? No. Sometimes, because it feels like there's monsters in the house. I'm Fitz. I'm Teplin. And you're listening to the... Dirtbag Diaries. This is the annual tale of terror. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Happy Halloween! In the late fall of 2005, my friends and I had a weekly ritual. It would always begin with us huddled around my laptop late at night. At the time, there was a crowdsourced database where users across the country would post their local urban legends, myths, and ghost stories. This was how we determined our destination for adventure. We avoided the universal stories, or easily explainable, because despite being a skeptic, I wanted that rush of fear. That uncertainty, that mystery where you begin to question what you believe about the supernatural. It was just before midnight on a chilly October night. I was doing my research, trying to find a direction to point our vehicle that seemed promising for a thrill. I kept coming back to a particular entry, clearly dramatized, 
but with enough intrigue to take a closer look for ourselves. The story was about the small town of Livermore, Pennsylvania, along the Connemaw River. According to the entry, the town was cursed by a witch in the 1600s. As she was burned at the stake, she promised to raise the town in a massive flood. Supposedly in 1889, the anniversary of this witch's death, the Johnstown Flood wiped the town of Livermore off the map permanently. The only surviving evidence of the town was the cemetery, go figure, and the chimneys that still stuck out of the flooded valley. With a little research, I found the witch, the curse, the timeline, and the reason for the town's flooding, they didn't hold up. But there were enough half-truths and unanswered questions to look for ourselves. I noted the important elements of the story. If you crossed the railroad tracks on the dead-end dirt road leading to Livermore, you would find your car vandalized by spirits. A phantom train would trap you in town if you crested the hill and lost sight of the tracks. A ghostly gravekeeper carrying a lantern would murder trespassers and bury them in the cemetery if they lingered too long. When you gazed upon what was left of the town, you could hear the voices of those who had perished coming from the low-hanging fog. Friends and I headed to the site around 1am. I figured that the vandalism was from locals who saw the approaching headlights of curious explorers. So we killed the headlights as we approached, and parked the car before the train tracks. This meant a three mile hike to our destination. As we made it to the top of the hill and started to descend, a train whistle blew. No freaking way. I ran back to the top to see a decidedly non-supernatural train barreling down the rails. Weird. Creepy. Surprising. Not otherworldly. We kept walking. At the end of the road, there were several gas well roads, unmarked trailheads, and paths. We found the abandoned town in no time. There it was, a wide reservoir with an earthen dam that stretched across the water, complete with a low-hanging fog as promised. As the fog rolled over the water, the shadows of what lie beneath became more clear. The chimneys and rooftops eerily penetrated the surface. Even knowing that this was a controlled flood without witches and spirits, the place was unsettling. We looked for the cemetery for another two hours, but never found it. It was time to head home, but we would be back soon. After a few calls, I knew where to look for the cemetery. We drove out in two vehicles this time, with eight would-be ghost hunters. When we arrived at the train tracks, we kept driving. There was no way anyone else would be out here in the middle of the night, or so we thought. We parked, and within 10 minutes, I found the trail that led to the cemetery. The gravestones were all at least 50 years old, many of them much older. Our friend Matt was the first to notice that there were a strange number of headstones with the same death date. Our minds wandered as we reached the back corner of the cemetery and came upon an even more unsettling view. Eight open graves, no markers, freshly dug. 
My friend Kelly freaked out. We got what we came for. Now it was time to get the hell out. We laughed and joked and tried to scare each other as we walked back to our cars. As they came into view, I stopped dead in my tracks and quieted the group. There was a third car and a light shining around at the bottom of the road. A middle-aged man with a long ponytail, scraggly beard, and a hunting jacket was shining a light into Matt's car. Matt and his three passengers continued towards the cars. The rest of us hung back, hidden in the trees. Matt spoke out as he approached the man. How's it going? We were just out looking for a scare, not here to cause any... The man cut him off mid-sentence as he reached into his truck with his free hand. Shut the hell up and put your hands on your car. You're not going anywhere. I turned to Tim. This dude has a gun in his car, and we need to get the hell out of here. On the count of three, we burst out of the trees and sprinted to Tim's Suzuki. The man yelled for us to stop. I asked who he was, but he told me not to worry about it. Actually, dude, that's exactly what I'm worried about. Tim jumped into the car and started the engine. The rest of us crammed in as fast as we could. We had barely shut the doors when Tim slammed his car into gear. We sprayed dirt everywhere as we started flying down the road. The mystery man jumped into his truck and pursued us. Matt became unfrozen and quickly followed behind him. We were doing 80 miles an hour on a dirt road, fishtailing each turn as we made our way towards the railroad tracks. We could barely hear the shotgun when it went off, but the muzzle flash made us certain of what we heard. Holy Then we heard the train whistle. Phantom train or not, we could not allow ourselves to get stuck between a train and a lunatic. As we slowed down to make sure our timing was good, the truck zoomed past and skidded sideways to block the road. We could see the mystery man fumble with his shotgun. I yelled for Tim to drive on the bank and go around him. We made it around him, and Matt overtook the truck as well. Now we were in a no-shit car chase, trying to get back to the main road where we hoped the truck wouldn't follow. Once we hit the concrete, the truck showed no sign of stopping. He was swerving, trying to force us off the road, high beams shining in our mirrors. I called Matt on his cell phone and we came up with a plan. We couldn't lose this guy, but he could. He pulled alongside the truck and yelled some expletives to piss him off, hoping he would try to chase the faster car. It worked. We slammed on our brakes, backtracked to the nearest intersection, and made our way home the long way with a plan to meet Matt back at our house. Matt showed up two hours after us, a time during which we assumed the worst. After our daring escape, Matt had sped down the highway. Eventually, he had come across a state trooper parked alongside the road. He told the officer the whole story and convinced him to go back to the cemetery. And that's where they found the mystery man waiting. As it turns out, our mystery man was the unquestionably overzealous gravekeeper of this abandoned cemetery. Rural justice declared the situation a stalemate somehow, Hands were begrudgingly shook from both parties, both having made mistakes and broken laws. And then that was that. We had our scary story, even if it didn't include ghosts, goblins, or ghouls. 
That was Joe Shearer. Next up, we've got a story from Drew Villanueva. We descended down gorgeously smooth tarmac to Beardsley Reservoir and began to climb a narrow gravel grade up the opposite canyon wall of the middle fork of the Stanislaus. This American life droned on in the background. Brendan weaved between ruts and ponderosa pine branches as I compared our progress on our mapping tablet to the Forest Service map. Brendan and I had landed summer jobs as wilderness technicians in the Sierras which meant weeks at a time driving down endless forest service roads to rate their quality, establish intensity of logging and burn activity, and describe ecosystem health and composition. It was all too easy to get lost out here. Road signs were rare, and the ones we found were only labeled with the cryptic National Forest Road Classing System. Even with a map, navigation was difficult. Some roads listed never materialized out of the pines, and some major roads we saw weren't listed on the map. The afternoon wore on. We drove down some roads, walked down others that were impassable, just enough to determine their maintenance level. As we continued north, I noticed something odd. Hey, have you seen any good campsites? Brendan shook his head as he navigated a tight turn. Usually, we saw lots of pull-offs and fire rings. Off-roaders used these roads for recreation, tearing down the main forest service roads to duck under jumbly spurs with their ATVs or dirt bikes and make the fire pits and pull-offs that we used almost every night. I wonder if the forest service is cracking down on fire pits around here, mused Brendan. Technically, the forest service had issued a burn restriction throughout the parched Stanislaus National Forest, but rarely enforced it. As twilight descended, we found an old meadow that was most likely used to corral free-range cattle. Young pines had already begun to take back the space. The trees seemed taller here, leering down on us as we rebuilt a kicked-in fire ring and began to cook dinner. This place is kind of creeping me out, I said. I put down my bowl of chili mac to look around the clearing. Why is that? We haven't seen anyone since we left the general store. We barely see anyone out here. Yeah, but this feels abandoned. I don't know, just something about it. That night, I woke to an indistinct metallic whispering somewhere far down the road. I listened hard. My heart beat faster and heavier. The whisper became a chiming, then a tinkling. Then a clanging. It sounded like a disembodied percussion section whirling in a dust devil. I sat upright in my tent. I didn't call out to Brendan. My mind roiled. The cacophony stopped a few hundred feet from the clearing, but continued to gong madly. Then it retreated back the way it came, clanging, tinkling, chiming, whispering. I didn't move. I sat up for another 15 minutes, then finally collapsed back on my sleeping pad. The next morning, we sat silently around the Coleman 2 burner, eyes downcast into our steaming coffee mugs. 
I asked Brendan if he had heard anything last night. He gave me a strange look and just nodded. We broke camp quickly that morning. We bumped and shuddered along the washboard roads in a tense silence, whipping through stands of pine forest and past meadows. We turned off the radio that morning, the blare of podcasts and music no longer breaking the monotony of the drive. We had almost forgotten the unsettling sounds from the night before. Until I pointed through the dust-caked windshield of Brendan Subaru to a mass of wood and stone in the middle of the road. What the f*** is that? Brendan eased down on the brakes and we came to a stop amongst billows of red California dust. The dust settled gradually as I approached the obstruction. I stopped short in my tracks and gaped at the construction before me. Yo, Brendan, come see this. The car shifted into park and Brendan walked up beside me. Holy sh**, dude. Before us was a crude pyramid of logs some three feet high, in front of which was an arrow made of stones pointing to a road spur, and written below the arrow in the same stones. H-E-L-P was nestled in the dust. We were some 30 miles from the nearest paved road, four hours of driving on the tortuous, rutted, and potholed roads. We hadn't seen a soul all morning or all the night before. It was close to 95 degrees in the baking Sierra Nevada sun, but a chilled silence rose between us. We inspected the sign from all angles. We looked for footprints, tire marks, anything. But we could see no imprint in the red dust besides our own boot prints. I guess we have to go check it out, I offered. We knew the code of the backcountry. Help anyone who needs it out there beyond cell service and general stores to the best of your ability. Because one day, you might be the one with a twisted ankle, and you had better hope you had plenty of mountain karma. We had to check it out. We grabbed our day packs and water and checked our map. The road spur 6N95 looked no different than any of the other roads. It didn't lead to a cabin, camp, lake, town, or a paved road. The spur itself was too rutted and overgrown for us to dream of guiding the Subaru down. It looked like no one had driven down it in years. Before I slammed the doors closed, I took a second look into the trunk and slipped a hatchet into my bag. Brendan saw and gave a nervous laugh as he locked the doors. We began our trek down the grade, taking in the pine forest shimmering in the dry heat. The water in our camelbacks sloshed in tempo with our steps. Otherwise, it was quiet. Every few minutes, we stopped to yell out in strained voices. We would listen to the roaring silence for half a minute, the blood pounding in our skulls, then trudge further down the road. Twenty minutes went by. Then forty. We saw no one and nothing out of the ordinary. But the feeling I had the night before, listening to the disembodied chiming, began to crawl back up my spine. We quietly discussed possible scenarios as we walked. Maybe someone had broken a leg hunting, or off-roading, and their buddy went up to the road to make the sign. We tried to explain away the lack of footprints or tire marks as the incident being old. They had simply found help and forgotten to destroy the sign. We didn't talk about how fresh and neat the construction looked. 
It seemed as if the shimmering trees were leering down on us as we walked and hollered into the dusty heat and polished blue sky. And just when I began to feel that, just maybe, we'd imagined the sign as a mirage after too many weeks in the woods, it happened. Hey bear! Brendan yelled ahead of me. I snapped out of my reverie. Not 30 feet down the road, the biggest black bear I had ever seen was walking purposefully towards us. I immediately yelped a reply, Hey bear! I stumbled backwards a few steps and instinctively reached for my hatchet. Don't run, shouted Brendan as he began to stumble backwards too. I wasn't sure if he was talking to me or the bear. In that moment, the fear was as real as the night before when the phantom chimes appeared. I turned and spidwalked besides Brendan the next 40 minutes up to the road fork. Maybe the bear made the sign. To get some lunch, to come to him, I panted. Brendan just snorted. We reached the car without a feeling of relief. The pyramid of wood and rocks was still there. And help was still outlined with rocks in the dust, almost menacing us with its mystery. But there was nothing else we could do. We got back into the sweltering Subaru, booted up the mapping tablet, and checked our crinkled forest service map. We had to follow this dirt road to the end. Thanks, Drew, for sharing that story. Okay, this one, this one kind of had me freaked out because... I, too, have been very tired wandering down the flanks of Mount Stewart, but I've never seen anything this scary. Next up, we've got an inexplicable story with Maria Dabari. It was 6.30 p.m. when Leah and I topped out on the north ridge of Mount Stewart. I am not a real rock climber. I am just lucky to have friends who are willing to drag me along on amazing adventures where, arguably, I have no place being. For the last 17 hours, Leah had patiently led and coaxed me up 20 pitches of extremely exposed technical rock. Now, I was ecstatic and exhausted, and finally, I had something to contribute— Because I had been here twice in the past four months by alternative means, I could lead us back to the trailhead. I wanted to be in the shortcut couloir by the time it got dark. From there, it was a no-brainer to Ingalls Creek. So down the chossy bullshit we went. Eventually, we put on our headlamps, and the valley floor disappeared. I alternated between shining my light in front of my feet and out ahead to pick our best route. And then my headlamp shone on a woman standing in the middle of the couloir, staring straight back at me. She wore a long white dress. Two thick black braids hung long on each side of her head. Her gray eyes were locked on us. I froze. I desperately tried to reason this away. I blinked. She was still there, looking at us. I looked to the rocks, the stumps, the loose ground surrounding us. They were all similar colors to this woman in her dress, but not exact. I looked back. She was still there, still staring at us. I yelled, hey! She didn't move. My heart felt like it wanted to leap out of my chest. What the f*** is going on? I heard Leah say behind me, and then I knew I wanted to get away as fast as possible. It's fine. Let's go. 
I said matter of a fact. I promptly walked down and right and put a small rib between us and the woman. That's when I noticed a small climber's trail that led right out of the couloir. I had heard rumors that this trail existed, but had never managed to find it before. I did not want to stay in that couloir, even if it meant I had to place my faith in an unknown trail in the dark. So we took it. Every stump we passed was a person until I double-took to realize it was only a stump. I engaged Leah in chatty conversation, trying my hardest to pretend nothing was wrong. Neither of us mentioned the woman in the white dress. For me, if I talked about her out loud, it would make her real. And it was dark and we were still hours from my truck. And then the trail petered out. I knew if we walked straight down, we would eventually make it to Ingalls Creek. Leah didn't want to leave the trail. I felt bad. I had assured her that I could get us out in the dark easy peasy. But if I explained why we didn't just go down the wash, I would have to bring up the woman, and I still did not want to talk about her. Our detour cost us some time, but finally we made it down to Ingalls Creek, found the log crossing, and picked up the trail to Long's Pass. As we descended the other side of Long's Pass, I found that it still wasn't enough separation to quit being scared, and even though we were both tired, I made sure we never plodded along in silence. And then my headlamp caught reflective glances from the vehicles in the parking lot below. I felt exhausted and utterly relieved. I looked ahead of me, and the beam of my headlight illuminated two eyes walking towards us. I froze and yelled, hey, again. The outline of a cougar turned and dashed into the bushes to our right. I heard twigs snap and knew it hadn't run off. It was still washing us. So we put our backpacks on top of our heads to look as large as possible and shouted a lot as we walked the final 200 yards to my truck. As we threw our backpacks in the back, I shone my headlamp up into the woods. I caught the reflection of the two eyes. It was still watching us. I have never felt happier to climb inside my truck. Finally, I felt safe enough to ask. Okay, Leah, what the f*** happened up there in the Cascadian couloir? It turns out Leah had figured she was seeing things because of my apparent indifference, but was now suddenly excited that she hadn't been hallucinating. We asked each other what we each had seen. We both described the same woman in the white dress with thick black braids and gray eyes watching us. That was Maria Dabari. Okay, we're cranking through these. Who's scared? Yeah, raise your hand. Sorry, let's just take a moment. This, this, I love this here. I love the tales of terror. This is great. Anyway, sorry, Sam Whitley. He's got another scary story about an eerie encounter. I'm exerting every ounce of my self-mastery. Unless I discover the alchemical trick of turning this mark. September 2011, my best friend Ryan and I embarked on a week-long backpacking trip into the Wimanoosh Wilderness, just outside of Durango, Colorado. We passed the time bagging nearby peaks, jumping off of cliffs into the chilled Balsam Lake water, riding, reminiscing about our college days, and enjoying the beauty of this serene plot of nature. 
Instead of taking the obvious way out, we decided to take the road less traveled. We followed game trails for as long as we could, then bushwhacked our way back to the trail. We continued to trek as dusk turned into nightfall, and finally, in the Colorado moonlight, we saw my car, our vessel for a safe passage home. I gleefully inserted my keys into the ignition and cranked the engine. We figured that the battery was dead, but we weren't ready to give up on our hot shower and a real bed. So we walked to the road and started flagging down passing headlights. One car passed. <laughs> Thanks. Then a truck stopped, but claimed that he couldn't help us since it was a company truck. Thanks. Finally, a black BMW stopped and agreed to help. The driver of the BMW was a man in his mid-twenties named Kevin. He said that he had just traded this car for something illegal and didn't know where the battery was located. Red flag? Nah, I thought. No worries. I took an auto tech class in high school. I can hook up a few batteries. While the battery charged, he explained that he worked at a brewery and he was on the way to Durango to visit his girlfriend. He offered us beer and we gladly accepted. The battery charged enough to start the engine and, with a sigh of relief, we thanked Kevin and jumped in the car to drive to our warm beds in Durango. Kevin pulled out of the parking lot before us and we followed him through the dark, unlit twists and turns of Highway 550. My stomach started to churn, but I didn't say anything. I didn't want Ryan to think that I had gotten sick off of just one beer. I saw the black BMW go around a curve, but as I came around the same corner, all I saw was dust. Where was Kevin? There was no sign of another car on the road or on the shoulder, so I pulled over to check the darkened roadsides. We worried he had hit the curve too fast and careened off the mountainside. But there was no sign of him anywhere. No tire skid marks, no headlights flashing from the black forest on the side of the road, no screams for help. Baffled, we got back in the car and assumed that maybe he was just a really fast driver, testing out his new toy. As I continued to drive, the pain in my stomach grew unbearable. Finally, I couldn't take it. I turned to Ryan and told him that I had to pull over to throw up. To my surprise, he looked relieved and a little green himself. I pulled to the side of the road. We both opened the car doors and commenced to vomit beer and trail mix all over the asphalt. In unison. Male bonding at its finest. We drove back to the house exhausted, reeking of sweat and vomit, and worried about our new friend. The next day, we couldn't get Kevin off of our minds. We decided to drive to the brewery he said he worked at and ask if anyone who worked there had heard from him. We sat down and looked at the menu, and when the waitress came to take our order, we asked if anyone named Kevin worked at the brewery. She looked puzzled. We explained to her what had occurred the night before with his black BMW and Good Samaritan actions. She went pale, and her lips started to quiver. She said Kevin, our old brewmaster, was on the way to visit his girlfriend when he died in a car accident on 550, exactly one year ago today.
That was Sam Whitley for our fifth and final tale of terror. We're going to travel to the other side of the world with Saul Zulo. In 2012, my wife and I got invited to a wedding in Iceland. The thing about Iceland is, it's the stuff of dreams, landscapes that meld the line between reality and fantasy. One instance, you're lost in the beauty of the country. The next, you're kind of creeped out by the lack of any sign of life for miles in any direction. Suddenly, those vast landscapes of mountains and volcanoes become ominous and imposing. You feel the weight of the void, and when your wife picks a hotel that your car rental GPS cannot locate, <laughs> you kind of laugh. We follow our GPS off the main road, Route 1, to what it assumes is the road we need to be on. The road gradually goes from asphalt, to dirt, to stones, to improvisation. We begin staring at our gas gauge now because, however far in we drive, how far out we need to come. After about an hour of this, we see our hotel set amongst the hot springs. Only this hot spring isn't like what you imagine for Iceland. It's in the middle of a water treatment facility for the nearby city of Reykjavik. Parking is a welcome relief, and we barely notice the cleaning staff emptying loads of laundry into what appears to be the dumpsters. Inside, there's no one other than a well-dressed gentleman sipping a cocktail. And after a lengthy wait, our host arrives and, bypassing small talk for the pertinent information, he then takes us to our room, which is being mobbed like Cinderella style by the cleaning woman. We have a quiet dinner at the adjoining restaurant, find some humor in the casual manner we are waited on. There are no other patrons, yet it takes forever to get our food and drinks. Then, kind of pack it up and decide to call it a night. Once asleep, I find myself alone in a dark hallway. Usually, I dream in a bit of a haze where even if it seems real, I can quickly tell it's a dream when I rouse. This is different. This is vivid. I can feel the texture of the ground and hear the hollow of my shoes walking along. I can even smell the air. It smells like burning flesh. Then, everything goes black. There's like another presence in my dream. It's not a physical form, it's something like an aura. Like the northern lights, except its colors are black and red, and it emanates a demonic high-pitched hum. My eardrums feel taut, like really tight. Then I wake up. Creepy dreams are not new to me. I binge-watch horror movies regularly. So when I wake up and see my wife comfortably asleep, I simply shake my head and lay back down. I fall asleep fast, and my dream resumes at the exact place I left off. This dark aura is humming and enveloping me. I feel like it wants to possess me and I'm stifled. My eardrums want to burst. My arms are paralyzed, and at this time, I can't move. can't hear anything other than that God-forsaking hum, and I'm losing my breath. At the loss of breath, <gasps> I'm able to rouse myself to real-world awake, not dream-awake. I've never had dream continuity before, so I stand up and go to splash water on my face and, looking back, see 
My wife appears still to be asleep. With a glass of water, I lay back down and stare at the ceiling in hopes of falling asleep again. And before long, I'm out. Immediately, the black and red aura has encompassed me. My eyes literally are burning, and my vision has become a whiteout, as if looking into the sun. The high-pitched hum has kind of recessed into more of a vibrating hum that I can feel in my bones. There's a language in here somewhere, but it's undecipherable. My arms and legs are paperweights. My breathing has stopped, and I cannot wake up. I feel myself trying to breathe, but it's what I imagine waterboarding must feel like. My jaw is cramped from clamping down so tight. And just when I'm about to asphyxiate, I wake up gasping and screaming. Instantly, my wife is up and had the lights on. What's wrong? I tell her my dream. That's odd. I can't sleep either. She says and she goes to get water. When she returns, she reaches for the pillow to prop it up and kind of sit up on. And right there on my pillow is a nickel-sized plop of blood. Bright red, brand spanking new blood. We survey each other. Neither of us are bleeding or have any open wounds. What the hell is this? After some talk, we agree to spend the night with the lights on and, you know, try to sleep. In the morning, we make haste and pack. I throw my pants on and go to sit in the armchair in the room under the window. It's covered in dry blood. I kind of panic and jump up and, almost knocking the chair over, I scan over and look in the bottom corner of the window and there's flecks of dry blood. I'm running through every question in my head because I cannot deal with this. Why is this chair covered in blood? What is this place? How the hell did blood get on my pillow and whose blood was that? What were the maids mopping away anyway? Why the hell are we the only people here? My wife, she looks at me and... Now she's a woman who only believes in what can be touched and seen in the natural world. And deadpan as possible, she goes... Last night, after you woke up and you were telling me about your dream... And after the blood on the pillow, I saw a shadowy figure pacing back and forth outside our window. Our room was on the second floor with no balcony. Outside, there isn't even a ledge or something for balance on. Those were good. I'm scared. Yep, super scared. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. Need some inspiration? Check out A Mountaineer's Life, a memoir by Alan Steck. Alan is a legendary old-school mountaineer and co-founder of Ascent Magazine. You can find this beautiful book full of incredible photographs at patagonia.com books. Check it out. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, the little company who believed they could build a better bike rack. Check out their lineup of racks at kuatracks.com. And support also comes from Vossen Brewing. Visit their beautiful brand new tap room in Richmond, Virginia, or check them out at vossenbrewing.com. Vossen, hail the journey. Support for the Diaries, it also comes from you. And from now until Thanksgiving, we're accepting submissions for a 2018 batch of shorts. That's right, your chance to be on the diaries. Right now it's happening. You can find our story guidelines at dirtbagdiaries.com 
look up in the right hand corner there's a write for us button and it'll give you all the guidelines how to send it in etc etc check it out we look forward to reading and hearing your stories a huge thank you to joe shearer drew vanilla maria dabari sam whitley saul zulo and everyone else who submitted a tale of terror for this year's episode Music Today by Aiden Baker, Kai Engel, Little Glass Men, Ars Sonar, Amy Stolzenbach, Steve Combs, Shimoound, The Effed Up Beat, Coin Locker, Sergei Karamanasov, Wayne Kinos, and Evan Schaefer. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can still get the ringtone if you donate to the Dirtbag Diaries now. And as always, you can find the links to the artists on our website. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitz Cahal. It was a joy to create with everybody. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.